Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is everybody on the edge of their seats? <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I'm on the edge of my bed. <laughs> and my hip is giving me jip. Something chronic, I can't tell you. Crack on, love. Right, crack on, crack on. Right. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to The Great Indoors. The podcast which reveals everything you ever needed to know about interiors and explains how to make it all really work for you in your home. I'm Sophie Robinson. And I'm Kate Watson-Smythe. First up, I am dying to get Kate's thoughts on the recent photo of Princess Anne's living room that went viral on the internet recently. What can we learn from the royal family's approach to home styling, I wonder? Uh, We also have an insightful interview with one of our interior design idols, Nicola Harding. And our style surgery is all about making do. What are the tips, tricks, hacks and wangles which will help you live with something you cannot get rid of. Maybe it's too expensive to change or your landlord won't let you. Stay tuned. There is hope. Now, Kate, I've been desperate to talk to you about that photograph of Princess Anne's living room that went viral across the internet this month. I did see it. The Royal Family's official Twitter and Instagram accounts, at the Royal Family, shared a photo of Princess Anne and her husband Tim Lawrence watching the Six Nations rugby over the weekend, which saw England take on Scotland or something sporting. Anyway, the post (laughs) read, as At Scotland team's patron, the Princess Royal often supports the team from the stands. Her Royal Highness and Vice Admiral Sir Tim cheered Scotland on from home today as they played England for the Calcutta Cup 150 years since their first match. Well played, Scotland, it said. And while the rugby, I'm sure, is thrilling for some, we were loving the opportunity to have a good old nose around their living room. Not least because maybe it wasn't what one was expecting. (laughs) I absolutely love the image of Princess Anne and her husband sat there watching television from their terracotta chintz sofa. And then there was like a well up for a chintz sofa. Well, I did obviously love the chintz sofa, but then there was this coffee table which was holding an absolute mountain of books immediately in front of the couple, whilst then there was this dog bed next to the TV which sat atop a rather huge media cabinet and then further back, two glass display cases absolutely laden with horse riding memorabilia, family photos, I mean, just stacks of ornaments. Well, I can tell you, the chat on Twitter went rather wild. 
A few comments. Did anyone else zoom in and try and have a nosy around their front room, one person wrote, while another put, love to see that they're watching TV in a room as cluttered as the average person. And someone else pointed out that Anne's living room full of dogs, military items and books. I mean, no surprises there. While another went in on the dog statue in front of the TV. Although one Twitter user wrote, I'm feeling quite at home with it. Love a pile of books. Very comforting. I mean, there's piles of books and there's piles of books, aren't there? And I think it's that fine line, isn't it? There was a documentary years ago, I guess, about the royal family. And they went up to, I think, Balmoral. And they showed the Queen and Philip having breakfast and they had the Tupperwares on the table with the cornflakes in and everybody was like, oh, the Queen uses Tupperware. And, <laughs> and there's that line between us, you know, we don't all necessarily expect her to wear her crown for breakfast, although I am a bit disappointed. But also, <laughs> I think that we don't expect them to live in quite so much dog hair, muddy clutter as the rest of us. Is that what yeah, it is? No. Did it not feel special enough? Was it a bit too comfortable for royalty? Well, I suppose that's the thing. I mean, we are talking about one of the most, I suppose, privileged, wealthy, well-to-do families in the UK. And like a lot of the people on Twitter were saying, looks like my nan's front room, you know. It was sort of like, I think it was joyously ordinary. And yet at the same time in the in the world, you know, that we very much live in now where everybody's like, you say, clearing away the Tupperware, picking the pants off the floor so they can get a picture of their front room for Instagram. You know, I just love the warts and allness of it. I thought it was brilliant. And, and I also think, though, it's quite an insight into how posh people really live. Messily. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, I kind of am. I mean, it does remind me, I grew up in the countryside and I was in the pony club and it reminds me of quite a few of the posh pony club houses that I went to. Just stuff everywhere and dogs and piles of paperwork and clutter and mayhem because actually and princess anne is very much of the of the horsey ilk isn't she they spend most of the time outside you know and the house is just somewhere to clearly dump down and watch Put the stuff i mean clearly it did resonate with a lot of people didn't it i mean there's obviously as i say a fine line between take me as you find me comfortable and uh, not sure I dare sit down on that. You know, what am I sitting on? But I mean, it had 130,000 likes on the Instagram account, which, you know, we could all aspire to, frankly. And for the most part, the comments were very positive, praising her for her unpretentious homely feel. But are we going to be as complimentary? Well, I did see quite a few design crimes, Kate oh, Watson smile. go, go. <laughs> I'll tell you the main one. The main one was buying a cabinet to put the telly in and then putting the telly on top. I mean, (laughs) did they carry it in and kind of couldn't quite be bothered? Did they buy a cabinet that was too small? I think what's happened there is they bought... This is like like a reproduction... TV cabinet because clearly they didn't have TV cabinets in the Georgian era. So it's sort of like a repro. There's already a problem there. Yeah. Repro antique TV cabinet, which I assume at one point had an ordinary size TV in it. And then they've upgraded to a giant flat screen. So the media cabinet is now too small. But not to worry, let's just stick the deli on top of it. (laughs) So the deli's about five feet in the air. It's absolutely classic. But, you know, not to waste the media cabinet because that can just get filled with books and paperbacks. You know, every surface is a storage area in uh, Princess Anne's front living room. There is literally stuff everywhere. And also, I think you pointed out paperbacks that have been there so long that they've actually got ornaments on top of them now. I mean, yes. it's one thing to... 
I mean, you know, Sophie's been doing on Instagram a little sort of styling challenge this for the last week or so. My which easy is the small win wins. Interiors. Easy wins. Mm. And the first yeah. one she did was the tray, you know, put stuff on the tray and, and arrange yes. the tray. I, we need to send Princess Anne a tray because it's <laughs> fine. It's fine to put a tray of beautiful objects on your coffee table books and create something meant and lovely. But having just left your Jilly Cooper there for so long, you've just put an ornament on top. It's quite the same effect, I feel. <laughs> and, and, and the sort of clutter continues. There was also, I mean, I just honestly, you can, you can tell I've looked at this picture for hours. The way that there are obviously lots of beautiful pictures in the room and pictures of horses, which, you know, I think is great. That's her passion. But it's almost like she's run out of space. And so you've got pictures that are literally so high up on the wall above the glass cabinets, literally inches from the ceiling. It's just that's not you you don't want your pictures so high up that you have to crick your neck to look at them. And while I loved the chintz sofa, I honestly did it. And it's obviously quite the heirloom because I made it a really good look. Uh, Princess Anne is actually sitting on a foam cushion that she's put on top of her sofa because the springs have probably gone on it and it's no longer comfortable to sit. I mean, there's make do and there's make do, isn't there? I tell you what, I'm quite in for it. I'm sitting on the bed recording because it's the only place I can get a signal and make the sound work. I, I could do with a bit of a foam cushion for my oh, dodgy you, hip. Well, yeah, maybe. Maybe that's what that's about. <laughs> I think she's she's clearly too posh to care, isn't she? It comes back to that. I think it's really interesting. And I remember seeing a Grace and Perry documentary for Channel 4 all the way back in 2012. But honestly, I loved it so much. It was called um, All in the Best Possible Taste. And he kind of unpicked the British class system, upper class, middle class and lower class, and looked at not just our interiors, but the kind of stuff we wear and all this kind of stuff. And what came out is the upper class in their rambling country piles literally take pride in the fact that everything's falling to pieces. You know, they were the what they weren't driving Range Rovers. They were driving the clapped out old Citroen estate and were patching up their cashmere sweaters and resoling their brogues for the 150th time. There was a real kind of honour in owning old threadbare stuff. Well, and also I, I think they regard it as, you know, you shouldn't tidy up when people are coming round. Somehow I think there's a feeling that if you're tidying up for your guests, then they're not they're not really your friends. They should take you as they find you. That there we I knew a school mum like that, I and mean, she was staggeringly posh. And, you know, she felt very strongly that if she'd tidied up if she tidied up when you went round, you basically knew she didn't like you. <laughs> <laughs> I could quite happily adopt that. It was a sign you were in the inner circle if you went in and the place looked like a small bomb had gone off. Oh, brilliant. Oh, well, let's adopt that. Let's adopt that in the name of being um, posh, shall we? Well, there we go. So for our international listeners who may remain baffled by the uh, complications and complexities of the English class system, you basically, if you've got someone coming round, either arrange for a small bomb to go off or make it look as if one has gone off and uh, then sit back and wait for all your guests to assume that they are your best friends for life. 
Now, I am particularly excited to bring you an interview with Nicola Harding, who is a bit of an interior design crush of both Kate's and mine. Now, she's designed homes for famous artists, film directors, where she sees herself as a kind of matchmaker, bringing together people and pieces in a marriage that will last a lifetime. And this is all part of her ethos of sustainability, which is central to her work. Now, I've stayed at a couple of hotels that Nicola's designed, the Rose and Deal and Beaverbrook in Surrey. And I just really love this kind of at-home feeling that she creates while also making a space feel very special too. I wanted to talk to her because she is, of course, a master of colour and pattern. And well, who wouldn't want to find out what makes this interior design mind tick? Hey, Nicola, it's so lovely to virtually meet you in these annoying times of pandemic. I can't meet you in person, which is a shame, but thank you so much for meeting me online. Oh, thank you for having me. Because I have honestly completely drooled over your interior designs for many years and it's heavily influenced me and the choices I've made. And I just think, I just want to fangirl for a minute and say thank you for bringing all the colour and the pattern. It's just wonderful to get an insight into your design ethos and what it's like to be one of the UK's leading top interior designers, I guess. Oh my God. (laughs) Well, you can't, you can't see me, but I can assure you I'm blushing deeply. I'm sort of working my way through the farm paint chart as we speak. Uh, Well, I feel very honoured to be here. Thank you for having me, Sophie. I'll tell you what, one of the first things I want to pick your mind over is you, like me actually, made the move to the countryside. I moved out of the city, it's coming up to five years ago. I think you moved from London to the Cotswolds about three years ago. Yes. And I'm just quite intrigued about that whole lifestyle move and, you know, taking on a kind of country house renovation. Yes, it was a big change that we'd been sort of stewing over for a while. We took on a gorgeous house that hadn't had anything done to it for a very long time. It's not like some of the projects that I take on for my clients where there's a a massive budget and you can do the whole shebang. This, you know, we need to do in increments and the way that I have done that and what I'd advise to clients or other people is, you know, even if you know that you're only going to do a chunk at a time, start by thinking about the whole master plan. Um, because if you are trying to make a budget stretch, then the biggest shame would be to do things twice, to have to spend money twice where you can avoid it. So think, even if you know that the plan will evolve and change, think about the whole picture, you know, maybe even just draw the floor plan of your house on a piece of paper and take out all the bathrooms and kitchens. So you're just looking at the shape of all the rooms and ask yourself what your life really looks like. You know, people would have put, all the washing machine and stuff in the kitchen and now sort of stepping back and thinking about it well most of the laundry is created upstairs near the bedrooms so if you possibly can shoehorn a washing machine and a dryer into the upstairs somewhere even if it's just a cupboard on the landing if you're moving into a house that needs like completely gutting and starting from scratch what would you prioritize to do first Well, I would say the kitchen is pretty key. What we did was we 
temporarily moved the kitchen into another room in the house. So we used the the 70s kitchen that was there and literally just picked it up and sort of mashed it up and shoved it in a corner in another room so that we could carry on living in the house whilst we redid the kitchen, which involved sort of taking some walls down and moving things around. There's obviously always an element of making do, isn't there, in that initial period and also actually probably throughout um, and this comes into our sustainability approach it's as much about how much you buy as what you buy you know the biggest element of our carbon footprint comes from consumption if you can actually make do or make something better make better use of it and avoid buying something new then that's the best possible scenario you know I think channel your inner granny you know, they would be horrified at how much we throw out. They would be repairing and mending and reimagining, you know, and buying a piece for life, you know, buy better, buy once. So, for example, in our house, we inherited a pink bathroom suite. And so we've moved that to another room and we've created like a little loo underneath the stairs. And we've teamed our pink bathroom suite with some new reclaimed brass taps and a much nicer loo seat and a reclaimed handle for the flush and put it against... Well, this is going to sound disgusting, but I think it looks quite nice. I'm loving it. I'm Um, loving it at the moment, by the way. It's ticking all my boxes. So it's it's our 70s pink... Um, sanitary wear against chocolate brown panelling and then lime green wallpaper that's a sort of off cut from a previous project and then these kind of peacock blue glazed floor tiles on them. I mean I just adore I mean already you know I love it that you've jumped already talking into colour and pattern because like clearly this is a passion of yours and I'd say it's a real signature of all your interiors they seem a real celebration of surfaces I mean in your schemes there's always a bit of panelling there's always wallpaper there's tiles there's paint <laughs> just in that and one it's little cupboard like, <laughs> I love it though I, I love the way that you sort of take all the sweeties out of the sweet shop and think oh how can I use them all together but in these really delicious colour combinations well they say beauty's in the eye of the beholder because I did have a client just about a week ago look at me and say as we sort of were going through the colour scheme for her project, say, it's it's not going to look like a sort of jar of sweets, is it? And I kind of <laughs> sucked my little finger and thought, hmm, well, maybe. <laughs> I mean, where do you get your colour palette inspiration from? Where do you look? Movies and television is a big part of it. If you think of The Queen's Gambit and even Mad Men years ago, you know, those really intoxicating interior sets, you know, historical interiors, just looking through books and online is um, a big source for me. But I think that's part of it with the TV. It's that how set design uses for example, colour combinations as a trigger kind of take us emotionally to a sort of place in history of how we imagine that moment, how it feels, what it sort of conjures for us. What I really enjoy about interior design is creating a feeling, creating an atmosphere. You know, I grew up moving house a great deal and always craved that sense of belonging and being held, I guess, by an interior, feeling like really questioning, I guess, what home 
means, what it feels like. And I think colour is an example of something that's a tool that, that triggers us and creates a feeling. So how do you unearth people's homely grounding colours when you're working with a client? How do you help people? You know, for example, I love the sweetie colours. And as you said, you've got a client who's like, oh, no, don't make it look like a sweetie shop. You know, it's so personal, isn't it? And we have very, very different reactions to colour. Yeah, I think it's really listening. You know, ask yourself the questions and keep asking the same question from a slightly different angle. And you'll tease the answer out that way. Where's your favourite place to go on holiday? What, What point in your childhood were you most happy or most unhappy? What time of the year is it that you most look forward to? Were there things that you sort of almost subliminally thought about whilst you were growing up of like how you imagined reading your child their bedtime story or what did you want Christmas to look like and dive into that picture you had in your head what was the mood what was the colours and I think it's sort of drawn out that way there's definitely a psychology of colours you know there different colours make you feel different ways there's there's research that's shown that cells painted pink have a calming effect on prisoners and I'm sitting talking to you now in my pink living room. Um, so yeah, maybe I have I'm... I have a lot of pink. I have a lot of pink. Mm. Can't say I'm the calmest person, but <laughs> maybe you need it then. Maybe yeah. maybe well, it's a good it idea. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But you know, I painted a restaurant dining room pink once, and since felt that it was a bit of a mistake because I think it was too calming. Yeah. You know, you want to have something that's actually going to inject a bit of dynamism, whatever yeah, the word is, yeah, exactly. um, a bit of energy. And so slightly clashing colours is has got more energy to it. One of the things I really love about all your interiors is there's always a really pleasing blend of vintage finds, which I think is really at the core of how you make a space feel homely but it's something that I know a lot of people really struggle with first of all sourcing nice vintage pieces or making stuff they've inherited or pieces that they already own work with a new scheme how do you create that perfect blend of mixing old things in a new interior it's a sort of cheap trick really it's a really short cut to giving a room a sense of permanence the fact that it's got a foot in yesterday and a foot in today makes it hard to date in terms of how to mix things from different periods I think it's just trial and error you know like with colors my preference is for things that don't feel too perfect you know I really like the energy that's created by something that's sort of slightly clashing slightly unexpected you know sometimes that works better than others and I think the only way you get through that is trying and enjoying the stuff that works and moving on from the stuff that doesn't you know there are rules and I think that the more you look at images of historic interiors and start to build an understanding of periods of style, vernaculars, you can see what pieces would have sat alongside each other and then sort of twist and play with it. When a piece 
does chime with your values. Maybe it's because it's a secondhand piece. So the fact that it's secondhand, A, B, the fact that because it's already got a history, it's bringing a soulfulness and a story with it. What it's contributing to your home isn't just the way that it looks, but an atmosphere. You know, I think that the value of that is huge. I think this is one thing I want to ask you, because I know that, you know, you have a real love of historic architecture and design. What happens if you don't have any architectural interest? There are no high ceilings or cornices or Georgian architraves or sash windows. Maybe it's a new build or, you know, even my own home. I've got a late Victorian farmhouse, which is actually two workers' cottages cobbled together with a bit of a 1980s extension. <laughs> and has absolutely very mm-hmm. little authentic architecture. If you've got that new build box, what would you do to to bring a bit of soul to it? Mm. Um, I think look at things that you touch, like doors and door handles and you know, sometimes with these new fabrications, it can be very lightweight and on a subliminal level. It doesn't kind of give you a sense of permanence. Um, so maybe just sort of identifying a couple of touch points where you could add something that feels like it's got some sort of longevity and history to it, you know, and reclaimed doors, reclaimed handles can be a an easy way to do that and maybe panelling what do you think about panelling yeah I was going to say exactly that I think panelling is a great suggestion panelling is a way of not just adding a layer sort of decoratively but you know some of the new build houses the acoustics aren't great because the the fabrication is the walls are thin and by adding extra layers you're making the acoustics softer and that makes the rooms feel cosier so yeah I think paneling is a great suggestion but there are so many different types of paneling so you've got your sort of very grand you know big format paneling and then you've got you know very low-key matchboard paneling which would have been used sort of back of house areas if you think of your downturn upstairs downstairs so you know in a smaller property you'd probably want to go for more like the matchboard back of house paneling which for me is my absolute favorite I think it's got a really cozy feel and you know it's interesting when we do these hotels you know which often have you know some very big grand rooms and some much smaller rooms almost always it's actually the smaller rooms that everyone ends up liking best because it's there (laughs) that you feel really cozy and held so you know I relish those sorts of spaces how interesting yes yeah exactly but they don't they're the unsung heroes aren't they like you say everybody wants the tall ceilings and the big chandelier yeah one other thing I wanted to touch on is um, in 2019, you you decorated the VIP lounge, I believe, at Decorex. Yes. And there was a big story that year, which continues, around sustainability and the part that the interior design industry as a whole, as a profession, has to play in that. I just wanted to ask you, how are we doing in terms of the business of interior design meeting the requirements to be more sustainable? Oh, well, there's there's definitely, there's lots of room still to go. Um, but I think everybody's really interested wanting to understand 
where what they're buying has come from and and what it means. But, you know, I think the process of undertaking works to your home on any scale involves a lot of purchases. You're a super consumer and that gives you a, a huge opportunity to use your purchasing power to affect some good. Mm. But I'd also say that, you know, it's so overwhelming, the environmental situation, that it's easy to just give up before you've even started and sort of think, you know, I I don't know where to start. I can't do it. I'm never going to be able to do all of it. So I'm just not going to do any of it. But actually just the smallest step does make a difference. You know, it doesn't need to be that you're buying some crazy chair made out of a hay bale (laughs) it could just be repurposing your granny's chest of drawers is actually doing probably a better job than using something that actually you're not in love with how it looks if you don't love it then you're going to end up replacing it And it comes back to your earlier point right at the beginning where you said have the master plan and Mm. don't make knee-jerk design decisions and regret them later on. It's almost like slow down. Yeah, and I think that the principle, if you love it, it will work, you know, and that applies to, you know, a piece of vintage furniture, a colour and the kind of unexpected clashes of things going next to each other are fun Mm. it's a fun playful energy rather than everything sort of working in a kind of squeaky clean harmony bit too Um, matchy matchy yeah exactly and relax you know it's when we try too hard that things can feel a bit awkward um that just sort of relaxed fun is what a home in my mind should be about From all your years of being a professional interior designer, what do you think's the one thing, what's the one bit of wisdom? What's the one thing you've learned? Um, Well, interestingly, I think that it's the things that I didn't do rather than the things that I did do that I regret. You know, I think that I, I wish I'd been braver. I wish I'd taken more risks, had more fun and worried less. I think that sense of relaxed fun that maybe is easier to come by now are the sort of design moments that I enjoy most. That was so fascinating, wasn't it? Thank you so much to Nicola Harding for making the time to come and talk to us. And, well, you... I love that bit about, you know, you regret not being bold enough. I think you see that, don't you, when I've spoken to people when I used to do more interior design consultancy and they'd be hesitating over a strong colour because they loved it, but they were nervous they would go off it or it wouldn't last or yada, yada. And so they would pick the safer choice and then you get used to the safer choice and six months later you're going, oh, why didn't I do it? So I think that's the big lesson for me there is if you're looking at something bold and adventurous, you should go for it because you will love it. Now, some of you may remember the story of my son's desk. We recently did his room when I swapped office and bedroom with him and we bought these reclaimed school laboratory worktops and there was a discovery of a sort of graffiti engraved note about Callum and um, it said Callum is a gay and then a word that rhymes with banker. And we discussed this with my 17-year-old and he said while he had no problem with the word that rhymes with banker, he took exception to the homophobic nature of the graffiti and therefore could we sand it all out, which we have done. Anyhow, I was very tickled to get this email from one of our listeners, Callum Finley. 
and he's very carefully signed off Callum not the Callum from the reclaimed workbench graffiti. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Bet he is. <laughs> well, graffiti aside, Callum has a very interesting question and we thought it merited a deep dive. Here is what he has to say. Hey, Kate and Sophie. So my sister and I bought our first home during lockdown two and have been trying to furnish it during lockdown three. I was burgled during lockdown one, and so we've got nothing at all. Uh, We ordered a sofa that we loved the design of from Habitat, but when it arrived, it was a completely different colour to what we'd imagined. We thought we were getting a rich, mossy green, but instead it's a kind of shiny blue-green. What do we do? We can't return it. It turned up damaged, so we accepted a discount to keep it. But we have no idea how to decorate around it. Do we go with wood floors? Do we replace the carpet? Should we cover it in throws and cushions? What do we do? Now, I'm probably not your target audience for the show, a 30-year-old skinhead from Gravesend, but I love the podcast and I've been a listener since you started back in 2018. I look forward to hearing your expert advice. Speak soon, Callum. Not the Callum from the reclaimed workbench graffiti. At least, I don't think so. Well, I am going to kick off because I'm sure, Callum, that you're absolutely lovely, but I'm furious with you oh, for buying... steady on, love. <laughs> what, what, what? Buying a sofa before you've even thought about your scheme or, or anything else that's going to go with it and then realising it's a colour that potentially you don't even like but keeping it because of the discount and now giving yourself this enormous headache of how you're going to decorate around it, even to the point where you're going to cover the whole thing in throws and cushions. Well, I mean, this is just, this is not the design process, Kate Watson-Smythe. I mean, how many times do we have Don't to repeat Kate Watson-Smythe me. You're shouting at Callum, not me. I feel completely <laughs> told off. God knows how poor Callum feels at this point. Oh, I mean, poor chap. First of all, first of all, like, you know, Callum, Sit down on your shiny blue-green sofa and let's take a breath. (laughs) It's going to be okay. I mean, where can we start with this? I want to make you feel better about this. There is a gentle element to what Sophie's saying about, you know, you can't trust the colour on the computer. And we came to this last week with that woman who tried to sue the magazine for her aubergine paint kitchen. And if you missed that, you need to go back and listen. But sometimes... Something seems like a good bargain or it's a hassle to return it. Returning a sofa is a nightmare. I ordered some post-it notes the other day which weren't sticky enough and were the wrong colour and I can't, I just can't even be bothered to return them. So, I mean, returning a sofa is a really big deal, isn't it? So I appreciate that now it's there, they've got to make it work. So instead of shouting at him, what's he to do? (laughs) Sorry. So you don't know the answer either. And and this isn't an unusual, it may be unusual that you've gone out and bought a new sofa that you don't like. I'd say that's unusual. But having a sofa that doesn't fit with your design aspirations or your colour scheme is a really common question. You know, sofas, unlike post-it notes, are a very (laughs) big investment. And we can't 
send them back or indeed change them that easily. So coming up with a scheme that goes with a big investment piece is a problem. I mean, you know, we've just been chatting to Nicola Harding about this, and I think it's just a good time to just slightly recap on having a a big picture vision, a master plan of your scheme. So Callum, you you talk about the fact that you've got absolutely nothing and you're starting from scratch and you're already going on a ricochet of buying random bits of furniture off the internet. It's better to come up with a scheme. Callum, you could do a mood board. I could help you with that, Callum. Let's get get your sketchbook out. He's not going to do a mood board. Let's get the Pritt stick and the scissors out. Do yourself a mood board or a Pinterest board and start identifying what sort of things you like so we can avoid any further shiny green design disasters. So let's just get that in place. And then the other thing I sort of sometimes recommend to people when they've got a piece of furniture that they don't particularly love is sometimes not to make your whole scheme anchor on that because it's just going to be a catalogue of compromises forever and ever and ever because everything's spinning out from this thing that you didn't really like in the first place. So sometimes it's an idea to, yes, cover it in the throws and the cushions And start with the colours that you do like, with a view that at some point in the future, you can pass your shiny blue-green sofa onto someone who is looking for a blue, shiny green sofa and replace it. And replace it with a rich, mossy green one. I, I would start also and say, I mean, you mentioned in your question, should you go with wood floors or replace the carpet? I think going with wooden floors is a good idea. Then you haven't got two sort of colours. You've got something quite natural. And I think when you've got a colour like that on a big piece of furniture, which is perhaps going to dominate the room, then maybe go a bit neutral around it and kind of knock it back a bit with natural wooden floors. So you could have the walls in a very neutral or you could go for, depending on the colour of the sofa, a much, much paler version. So it looks sort of like you meant it, but not bringing in more of the same colour. Or you could have two very neutral armchairs or one, depending on the size of the room, and perhaps you just get one cushion to go on one of the chairs, which has a bit of that colour in it or a plain, you know, block of that colour, and putting that on one of your neutral chairs so that it does look deliberate and you're incorporating it into the scheme rather than trying to fight against it. And I'm going to go for a bit of rebranding. I mean, shiny, mossy, green, blue isn't lovely. Are we talking peacock? Are we talking teal? Dark teal? Let's rebrand it. Let's rebrand it and have a look at those sorts of colours. And once you're into that, again, Sophie knows much more about the colour wheel than me, but those shades of blue can work with shades of orange or something opposite or a paler version of what it is to sort of complement it. So they're, you know, we never look at a colour in isolation. So you need to kind of consider the room as a whole now that you've got your big shiny teal. burnt peacock (laughs) sofa in there (laughs) burnt peacock that sounds painful I like what you say about um the wooden floor idea and I think this is a good tip for anybody who is starting out from scratch and perhaps is a bit like Callum a little bit not quite got the vision and the master plan together by investing in your neutral basics so a wood floor is brilliant because then you can add rugs to it later on in the colour scheme that you get to feel confident about. Whereas if you go for a fitted carpet, you're stuck with it, aren't you? And I think I've made all the listeners aware that I'm very uncomfortable about rugs on carpets for some reason. 
So I think rugs on wood floors would be a really good investment. And then, yeah, maybe at this point it is, I mean, this is really hurting me to say it, but it is painting the walls in a neutral shade where you can add colour later on and build your look up slowly. You don't have to do everything from the get-go. And I think sometimes when you moved house and you've got this blank canvas, there's a feeling that you've got to rush out and buy everything and you've got to get it all right. And there might be just buying, you know, get a bit of furniture off, recycle, pick up some bargains from eBay, do a little make, do and mend for a while. Slowly let your your look evolve. And I think it's absolutely key that you can't ignore this. You know, it's in your room now, for better or worse, for the time being or the foreseeable future. So don't sort of rush off and buy chairs. You say you've got nothing. Buy chairs and lampshades and cushions and rugs that are all part of the separate scheme that you've now decided you like because your sofa will always look like an uninvited guest. You need to make it feel part of what you do. So whether it is, as I say, just one cushion or one lampshade or something else in that colour or toning colour in another part of the room is going to make it feel like it, it joined in and like, you know, like you had a thought process. When perhaps, <laughs> Callum, you didn't quite have a thought process. Not everyone can have a thought process. I'm never doing a mood board, let's be honest. She, I know you're not going to do a mood board. I'm not doing a mood board. But you've got to make it look like you thought about it. Um, it throws up lots of other... Um you know, interesting problems, isn't it, about things that we all have to make do with in our home, you know, be it something you've bought by mistake or something that you've just inherited. You know, like one of the other things that people ask me a lot about is, you know, what do you do with, if there is a fitted carpet, it's in a colour you don't like, or what about tiles in the bathroom? Tiles is a big one. Because all this... Oh, that's one of the hardest things, isn't it, to make do with if you've got and rented know. kitchens. Rented kitchens mm. always have terrible tiles. I mean, it is that is a real problem for people. But there are solutions to that now. Come on, then let's hear them. Well, there's a lot of people selling tile stickers. So if you've got a sort of plain white tile that you don't like, there are lots of designs you can put over them. You can paint your tiles now, can't you? And you can also replace or get those grout pens to sort of smarten the grout up. So you might not be able to replace the tiles as such, but there are things you can do to smarten them up or disguise them. Sometimes as well in kitchens, bathrooms, you can put panels on top of tiles. Yeah. Like um, four so micro there are panels options. for a more modern look. You know, you can paint your kitchen. You can put um, sticky bit of plastic on your kitchen. Change the handles. Changing the handles is a good one as well. There are, yeah, there are lots of little things to do. And, and you know, we all inherit things. I am recording this this week. The podcast is brought to you live from my bedroom, uh, which is the only place in the house where I can get decent Wi-Fi. And we still have the wood chip wallpaper ceiling. Do you? I yes. have never noticed that. No, of course you haven't. <gasps> but I tell you why, well, we still an have admission. it. And the reason is, one... That I'm fairly it's certain it's holding if, the ceiling together. It's holding the ceiling up, <laughs> and I just can't face either the aggro or the cost of replacing the whole ceiling. But also, so we kind of made do with that. How? I mean, how do you make do with? Yeah. Well, we've slightly got away with it because it's our bedroom, and we both wear glasses. So you know, I can't see um, it when I'm in bed. Oh, that's yeah. So you know, yes. can't see it. Don't care. Um, but mm. I am in here now, and I have got my glasses on. And you know, I'm I'm thinking maybe I'm going to start a movement to bring wood chip back. It's not going to work, is it? Drop the mic. <laughs> I, 
Please. I'm going to make it fashionable again. I'd be doing <laughs> a lot of people a lot of favours. Good <laughs> luck with that. And paint it gloss while you're at it. That's a particularly stylish look, isn't it? Gloss painted wood yeah. chip. One of the things I sometimes play around with if I'm trying to get rid of things I don't like, I'm thinking like ugly radiators, fitted wardrobes, I don't know, furniture that's maybe a bit make-do-y, you know, maybe junk shop furniture. Sometimes painting it to blend in with the wall colour is quite a good way of disguising it. Do you know what I mean? Like if something is really jumping out... If you just paint it in the neg shell, maybe the same colour as the walls or a tone da- darker or a tone lighter, it stops like yelling at you, going, look at me, I'm a hideous Formica wardrobe. You know what I mean? And it also I think people are away. nervous, aren't they, of painting Formica. I mean, you can get paint that covers everything now, but there are mm. now a lot of tutorials you can look up where you can perhaps cover either wallpaper your wardrobe doors Mm. but also I've seen tutorials where you can cover them in material so there's either just stretching a piece of material over them or there's the slightly more complicated version but next level where you make a sort of frame and put some foam in it and then stretch material over it so you're making this incredibly luxurious padded wardrobe doors so that's a really good way because quite often those fitted wardrobe doors I mean either it's a wall of mirrors and who needs that next to the bed you don't need that so that's another that's a big one I think for renters and you know perhaps people who don't have the budget to rip things out and also you know you want the storage and cabinetry is phenomenally expensive to buy. So if you've got a whole load of brilliant storage that you don't want to get rid of, but the doors are giving you grief, then, you know, change the Mm. doors or take them off and put a curtain all the way across, but not a student sort of curtain. You know, you get a track on the ceiling and and pull a curtain across the whole wall. Yes. So that it looks from the ceiling. Yeah. Do it from the ceiling all the way to the floor. That can look so it looks incredibly luxurious. Wave. Yeah, like and you could heading. do that in a sheer, in just some sort of cheapo muslin, or you could do it in something, you know, more expensive and really make a feature of it. It's a bit about lateral thinking, isn't it? And, you know, as a final point to come back to Callum's, was it burnt teal? Are we going with his burnt teal sofa? What's um, with the burnt teal? Teal's not burnt. No, I'm trying Orange to rebrand. I'm trying to rebrand his sofa, his shiny ocean mossy blue. sofa. Ocean, ocean blue. Stormy ocean aqua. Ocean. Teal, um, marine. Plankton filled marine ocean blue. <laughs> anyway, Gallum sofa. There is, of course, the other slightly nuclear option to make it disappear, and that is to paint the wall behind it in the same colour, but perhaps go halfway up the wall so that the sofa disappears mm. into the wall. That will look deliberate, and then do the top half of the wall in your pale cream or a crew or whatever neutral colour you want that ties in with the rest of your more neutral scheme. Mastermind idea, Kay. I think that's genius. So you're camouflaging. Camouflaging, camouflaging the sofa. I mean, it and does... you do love a half-painted wall, don't you? I do love a half-painted wall. I mean, it you does do. depend. If Callum's looking at the colour of that sofa and it's just making him feel a bit ill every time he looks at it, then he's only got a throw to fall back on. But if it's just that it wasn't quite the colour he was expecting and on balance it's not a bad colour then you can do that to disguise it. And there is nothing more affordable and transformational than paint after all. There you go. Thank you so much for such a good question, Callum. Even if you think you aren't the target audience, everyone is our target. Anyone who cares about the place they live is in our target audience, really. 
even skinheads from Gravesend. I would like to know who else is listening to the show and thinks that they're in the minority. Have we got any fire eaters in Fife or bikers in Berkhamstead? Get in touch with your design dilemmas. Thanks, Callum. And if you do indeed have a style surgery question for us, we want to hear from you. Send us an email or a voice note to thegreatindoorspod at gmail.com. And as always, do check out the blogs for more details. I'm madaboutthehouse.com and she's sophierobinson.co.uk. And you will always find us on Instagram where I'm madaboutthehouse and she's sophierobinsoninteriors. And of course, you are all welcome to our Facebook group, The Great Indoors Podcast. And do share the show with anyone else you feel might enjoy it. And we wouldn't say no to a little ego-boosting review on the podcast app if you have a spare moment. Thanks to our producer, Kate Taylor of Feast Collective. And of course, thanks to you for listening. And we'll see you in the great indoors. Indoors.